Thank you, worship team. I'm so happy to be here with you all this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1? What a glorious God we serve and worship and have been singing about and reflecting on this morning. Oh, I hope you come to worship gatherings like this pumped, ready, engaged, focused, more than any other thing you do, really. This is, there's nothing more important you can do than gather with God's people as the Spirit works around scriptural truths and worship the God who made us. That's what we're made for. It doesn't mean you don't work that into every other day of the week and every other thing you do, but this is this time to refocus and figure out what in the world's going on. Could we go back to that hymn we just were singing? I, I want to think about, if you don't understand what we're doing, how strange it is. Uh, is that the beginning? Yes. Um, listen, listen, look, we were just singing to inanimate objects. We were just ordering around things like the moon, right? All creatures of our gutting, thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer glitter, praise him. We're, we're, we're saying, hey, sun, moon, praise him. And it's not just the sun and the moon, it's all sorts of things. Let's, can we keep going? Do I have power? I have power. Um, Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven along. We're ordering around creation here. It's a fascinating thing. Thou rising morn and praise rejoice. Lights of evening find a voice. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Uh, and then this beautiful line, all whom Christ has entered in, let now redemption's song begin. So especially those who have been redeemed in Christ now, become not just agents of worship ourselves, but we're commanding creation to do it. Now what's funny about that is none of these things we're talking to hear us. <laughs> right? They, they don't hear. They, they don't have minds that can even receive a command like that. What an odd thing to do. So what in the world is that exercise all about? Well, you know what's going on, right? If you think about it, what we're saying is, is oh, let's make sure we, the ones who can think and have been created to truly worship in relationship and from hearts set free because of Jesus, we're the ones who need to do this, who, who need to epitomize this worship. And then this is really saying to us, it's all speaking to ourselves, isn't it? To one another. It's saying, make sure when you see the moon and the sun and the stars and the wind and the clouds that they become catalysts for worship and praise in your heart and in your life. Because the sad truth is the heavens declare the glory of God all the time. They're never asleep on the job. They're always doing their job, but it's our job to see God in his glory in the heavens that declare his glory and everything else he made to show us who he is. This hymn and many others like it, in spite of trials, so in the midst of trials, do we stop glorifying God then? No, we bless him whose mercies crown each day. Or we praise him, we praise him in the midst of trials, in all of it. Let all things their creator bless Bring delight to his heart in the way we worship him. And not just in corporate singing, but in everyday life that is an act of worship, an expression of worship. And, and then this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian expression of worship to the creator God who made everything. 
for his glory and for our pleasure. And we are getting after the biggest ideas there are. And that's exactly what we're doing as we kick off our series through Genesis 1 through 11 this morning. We read through all those chapters last week, and now we are going to preach through these most important books of the Bible. There are some books of the Bible I wish I could change the title to. Um, You know, the titles aren't inspired, I can say that. Um, One of the titles I wouldn't like, I would want to change numbers. Accountants love that title, but it, it, the old title is Wilderness Wanderings. Now that's a oh, right? Marketing people did not name that numbers, right? Um, I'll, I'll tell you other ones sometime later, but I would not want to rename Genesis. Genesis is a great title. It means origins, beginnings, and, and it's the beginnings of everything in creation. Oh, th- this is most important that we get the foundation, that we get the origins, the beginning, because everything traces back to that. You can't understand anything if you don't understand the origins of the thing. Where did it come from? And then therefore, what's it there for? Including everything and ourselves. And so Genesis is a great name for this book. We'll preach through it, uh, the first 11 chapters. There's a reason we do that, because really Genesis that lays out the origins of everything is Easily divided really into two sections. One chapters 1 through 11 are primeval history, the the foundational history of everything. And then we've got this bridge in chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 where God establishes a covenant with Abraham to kick his rescue mission into gear. See, we rebelled against our creator. Insanity, I know. And thought we'd go our own way independent of him. And so God, right there after we do that in Genesis 3, starts the rescue effort. But he, he gets a focus to it in the man Abraham and his family. And then so the rest of the book, after that, chapter 12, 1 through 3. And then the rest of 12, all the way through 50, the end, is God's working with this people he establishes with Abraham where the seed will come, the, the one, the, the offspring of Eve one day will come and he'll restore what's been tragically lost in the fall. Oh, it's such an important book. If I could only have two books of the Bible, it'd be Genesis and any gospel, one of the gospels. Uh, because they bring together the 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 beginnings of all of it, and the wonderful fulfillment of all that has been lost. And so I'm I'm delighted we're diving into this book. I hope you are too. One of the problems, though, as we go in is it's familiarity. I'm concerned that you've seen flannel graphs of this since you were four, right? Uh, Or watched Veggie Tales and have that version going on. And so maybe some of us need to pray that the familiarity won't uh, cloud out the incredible importance of it. Or some of it's strange and different and so not like us in our culture. Well, that's good to hear a voice from the past because our culture isn't all there is. and, And we need to be informed by other cultures. In ours, and so, so I hope you're you're really excited to get into this book. I really am. So, that's the foundation. We're just going to do two verses this morning, Genesis one one and two, uh, as we dive. Oh, oh, did somebody say woo? Yeah, it's just two verses, but you're saying oh, there's a lot to talk about in there. Yes, there is. But let's uh, let's pray then, if that's the case. Let's pray then. Help, Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have always been a God who talks to us. You've always been a God who uh, creates with words and communicates with words and is inherently relational. And then when you make us, you relate to us. You talk to us in a way we can understand and hear from you in ways that illumine our understanding and deepen our relationship with you. So I pray that's exactly what happens this morning, Lord, as we uh, open your word and dig into it, just as you've commanded us to. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. You ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, there it is. We, we will spend many weeks, uh, sermons, going through the rest of this chapter and the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and uh, we have these two very important verses before us now. They seem simple, but they could not be more important and not more profound. What do we find here? We find in the beginning, God. The main point of our passage, the main point of this chapter, the main point of the Bible, the main point of our lives is God. This word Elohim is used 35 times in these 31 verses of chapter 1 alone. If you miss the main point as God, you've missed the main point. He's the point. In the beginning, God. This is about God. I know when we, I said Genesis 1, 1, and 2, immediately some of you started thinking about fossil records. And that can be good and helpful and important, and we need to do that sort of thing. But when you read these verses, and you read this chapter, and read this Bible, you've got to think about God. We are on a constant character of God quest. Every time you open the Bible and sit there, your number one question, your driving motive is to know God. Know the God who made this. Know the God who wrote this. Know the God who made you and created you for himself. In the beginning, God. That's what it's about, and I don't want to miss that point. It's all about God. This God, as we see, is eternal. When everything began, He was already there. God is not one who has a beginning or an end. So radically different than everything else we know. So radically different than ourselves and everything else. You know of nothing else like this. This is one of those times you just need to get on your face before God. Because you know of nothing else that exists that didn't have a beginning. Won't have an end. And it doesn't depend on anything for its existence. He is God. In the beginning, God. It doesn't argue for his existence. 
It doesn't give you all sorts of rational basis for it. There's a place for that. It assumes that the Bible actually says the fool says in his heart there's no God. Romans 1 says that God, since the beginning, has been giving such a profound and overwhelming revelation of who he is in creation itself and inside human experience that that it's undeniably true, but that's not the case, is it? We deny his existence all the time. Even those of us who are theists can deny his existence in a simple act of disobedience. Living as practical atheists, even though we believe deep down he's God, we can act as if he doesn't exist when we go our own way. And so God is, in the beginning, God. Just let that sink in for a little while. There's a sign at Hume Lake Christian Camp that says, God is. Some people see that and think they forgot to finish it. (laughs) Oh, it's very intentional. God is. He exists. We didn't invent him. We didn't manufacture him. We didn't make him up. He made us. It's all about him. It's, It's all about God. In the beginning, God And then what's the first thing we find out about this God? He created. The the first thing we find out about God is this this verb bara, this this creator God. He's a God who created, and, and he is therefore the creator, and therefore everything else that is, is the created. The first thing God wanted to make sure we knew about him is that he's the creator of everything. That's why it says, of the heavens and the earth. That's a very Hebrew way of saying everything. Everything. Everything you know. The universe is created by God. It's all His. As we saw, apart from Him, it's just formless and void. It's just darkness with no light. And then God comes and He speaks everything into existence. Every molecule, every atom, every, every matter, every, everything that is. He speaks it into existence. And it is. And then he keeps it existing and sustains it as it is and as he wants it to be. He's got it in his hands. He's not a God who creates it and then steps aside. In the beginning, God created. Sometimes I think if all we were to do was to get that verb right about God and then ourselves, everything would be fine. If we could just truly take in the fact that God's the creator and we are the created, well, then everything else will fall into place. And I believe unless you get that right, you can't get anything else right. If you don't establish God as the creator and you as created and everything else as utterly dependent on him for its very existence, do you see how that puts everything in proper perspective? Everything is just aligned, and I know, I know uh, that, that this can be so hard for us because we get this insane idea that we are somehow in charge. We somehow know better than God, but if you say, no, he made it all. Everything owes its very existence and ongoing sustaining reality to his reality, then everything falls in the line, and now we can define ourselves and everything else properly. Now we can define what it means to live out of sorts with who he's made us to be. You can't define what we call sin 
unless you define God as the creator and us as created. Sin needs to be defined in relation to God as creator and us as created. Otherwise, we make up our own definitions of sin. But if sin is being in right relationship, being out of right relationship with your creator, now it's a different story. And all the other things we typically think of as sin, immorality, are now defined in a broken relationship with our creator, a fractured relationship with our creator that disconnects us from everything else that he created us for, starting with disconnection from him. If we could just get that right, you know, if you've never read Calvin's Institutes, I encourage you to slog your way through at least some of it. Get, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, if you're not going to read the whole thing, at least read the beginning section. In the beginning section, he talks about this. He says, wisdom. He says, wisdom. Uh, when wisdom is actually true and solid, it consists, he says, almost entirely of, of two things. Knowledge of God and of ourselves. And then he helps us see that those two work intricately and, and interdependently together. That you see God and you can see yourself for who you are. And then you see yourself and you look at God and you see him better. And they work together all the time. And that's what Genesis, right in the first verse, is leading us down. The, this road of knowing God and knowing ourselves. There's nothing more important than that. Do you see how that frames everything else? There is not one article in the newspaper today that isn't profoundly influenced by how you answer the question, who is God and who are we? Those are the two most important questions you can ever ask, the two most important answers you can ever find, who is God and who are we? And that's right off the bat where God wants us to go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so we need to ask the question, who is God? He's, as we said, the creator and sustainer of everything. He brings form out of formlessness and light where there's just darkness. And we see also that the Spirit of God is at work in this. Beautiful, beautiful foundation for us. Now I know, again, some of you are thinking, well, what about evolution? What about science? And, and I, I do want to acknowledge how important those questions are and that we should invest time in understanding those sorts of things. We will have resources on those questions of, of creation, evolution, uh, the, the length of the days, those sorts of things on our website with the sermon series. But, and, and please avail yourselves to those things, but please don't miss what the Bible's emphasizing here in the midst of that. Yes, it's good to think about them, and I think at the very least, to read the Bible rightly, you've got to have an awesome, miraculous creation of God by an all-powerful God, at least at the beginning, and then in making kinds of living things distinct and glorifying to Him in that. But please realize that as important as the how questions and the when questions may be, the Bible emphasizes the who and the why questions. And that's where I want to make sure we go this morning, to, to the who, God, and the why for his glory and our joy. God created everything so that he will show who he is in creation. Creation was an overflow. It was a, uh, an effulgence of his glory and his character spilling out because he's sh so incredibly shareful. Not because he needed to. 
because he was lonely, but because there was this overflow of who he is, and it was creation, intended to show who he is to the ones he created and for us to enjoy. That's what the Bible says in the New Testament. He, he, he did all of this for our pleasure, for us to enjoy all of it. Oh, the church, we've done a bad job getting that right a lot. Either we make things ends in themselves or we think they must be bad if they're able to be sinned with, like food or sex or whatever it is, but, but it's all for us to enjoy for his glory. And so we've got to think rightly about everything because we think rightly of God in creation. Um, I, I want us to think about just some basic things. Look, look at this photograph. I love this photograph. Love that photograph. First, you might not even notice the tent first, but here's somebody camping out under the stars. And first I look at that tent. That tent's pretty amazing. Can you imagine how much the patriarchs in the book of Genesis would have loved that tent? Man, that would have made things easier, right? That's an amazing tent, right? You put it up in a minute and a half and take it down less than that. And it's just, well, some of you can't. I can't. Uh, so, um, and how about that dog? Dogs are amazing. Do you know dogs now can tell when someone's going to have a seizure and warn them 20 minutes ahead of time? They know when earthquakes are coming before anybody else. Dogs can do tricks and do amazing. Dogs are amazing creatures. Capable of tenderness and, and companionship and, and a, a kind of compassion and empathy at their level. Dogs are amazing. Not to mention the human in the tent. Actual zenith of God's creative power and beauty. And the light inside the tent. And, and how about those trees? Those trees there on the horizon are amazing. But did you happen to notice uh, the Milky Way? <laughs> the Milky Way is looming overhead. Oh my. This is what we're talking about when we talk about creation. Uh, we can't forget about how awesome it all is. Uh, Let's, let's make some, some big observations here. When the Bible establishes God as creator, it distinguishes him over and over again from everything else, especially things that start to claim God-like status, like idols. But God puts all that in its place, First Chronicles 16. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Boom! Do you see the radical difference between God and everything else? All those idols. He's trying, and he says things like, wait, wait a second. I made the stuff you're making the idols out of. And you're worshiping them, the works of your hands, which means you're ultimately worshiping yourself rather than me, the God who made you. He won't let that happen. Uh, and that's what Paul gets after in Lister, right? Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things, idols, anything but God. Actually, Paul's talking about himself probably here and, and Barnabas that they're starting to worship because they did some miracles to a living God. What's the difference between him and idols? Oh, he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul goes right back to Genesis 1 to preach in Lystra. So it's just amazing. The Bible does it all the time. It's constantly going back to the beginning of all of it, just like Jesus does in Matthew 19. People say, um, 
Jesus didn't say anything about marriage or about sexuality. It's just not true. Not only do we have his ideas about those things here, his teaching about those things here, we have his doctrine of Scripture here and his view of creation here. In answer about divorce, he, he talks about marriage, and he says, have you not read, which is quite a rude thing to say to religious leaders, <laughs> have we not read, right? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. See, Jesus goes right back to our passage. He grounds everything there. You have an ethical question about divorce or marriage, you just go right back to the beginning. It puts everything in its proper place. And as Jesus views creation and scripture and male and female and marriage and divorce in light of creation, don't forget this. Speaking of Christ, by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What an astounding thing to say. We bring this carpenter who had nothing in his appearance that would attract worldly thinking people to him. And we find out that not only is he, yes, a great teacher, but he's the creator. Do you think of Jesus that way? Have you reduced him as every cover story around Easter and Time Magazine, UNS News and World Report wants you to think of him as just a rabbi, a, a teacher of sage things? No, he's actually the creator of rabbis and teachers. He, he's the creator of everything. The Bible makes this point over and over again. Uh, read Hebrews 1. Read uh, this passage of Colossians 1. Read John 1. Actually, let's go there. Keep your finger in Genesis 1 and go to John 1 and read this astounding truth of who Jesus is. John 1, 1. Even though we're way further down the road in the Bible and in biblical history, we actually get an even earlier picture here than Genesis 1, 1 gives us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh, do you see this glorious truth? And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word, Jesus, the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Creator entered into creation through the incarnation, God becoming flesh, so that He could redeem lost, broken creation and bring us with Him. That's this astounding truth that Jesus is the creator. That's why we worship him as God. He's the creator. He's not some lesser being. He's God himself. That's who he is. And so we worship him as God along with Father and Spirit. And we worship indeed in light of creation. Nehemiah 9. 
worships God, and look what it worships him in light of. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are God. Now why? Why why do we worship in this way? Watch. You've made the heavens. Oh, there it is. The heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And the heavenly hosts bow down before you. We worship God because he's the creator. Well, of course we do. And we realize as Psalm 95 says, oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's our maker. Of course we kneel before him. That should be the instinctive response. Yet scientists and naturalists and historians and anthropologists can be incredibly arrogant people thinking that they somehow hold all truth in their hands and rather than getting on their faces before God. They reduce him to a mere invention of men rather than the other way around. Oh, but do you realize what we lose if we don't have God as creator and us as created? I don't believe you have any basis for, for your dependence. Where does your strength come from? I don't think you have any basis for dignity. What's your basis for human dignity? I know you may believe that everybody deserves civil and human rights, but why? Why? Why do you believe that? What's your basis for that? If you're not someone who thinks about the meaning of your life, you're not a human. That's what we do. You lay in bed at night, looking at the ceiling, deep down, needing to know our lives have meaning. And they do. You are not created for 78 years in a pension. That's great news. You were created for relationship with God to glorify Him. That's where the meaning comes from. That's where the purpose comes from. And that's where the accountability comes from. You answer to God for everything. Everything, your money, your sexuality, your possessions, your mind, your reasoning capability, your sense of humor, your artistic ability. You answer to God for all of it. He made it all. He's the author of it all. He's the artist, the designer, the engineer of all of it. He answered to him for all these things. And so we have dependence and meaning and purpose and accountability and utter dependence on him for everything. And it's the source of human dignity. It's one of the hardest pictures for me to look at. In an awesome picture. It's in the civil rights movement in the early 60s. And I just think this is brilliant. You know, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. I just went and reread some of letters from a Birmingham jail yesterday. And it is amazing how theologically grounded his ideas were. And the civil rights movement is. Still is. Still is. He's he's not just quoting um, great leaders. He's quoting the Bible over and over again. I was thinking, man, for anybody who doesn't think Bible passages and Christian faith should be part of the public square, can't like Martin Luther King. It it was filled with Bible. And there's one passage where he, he talks about uh, the, the biblical view of creation and, and of humans. And that's where it all comes from, right? From our passage this morning. If you really believe in civil rights and human rights, I, w- I want to ask you why. What's your basis for that? If you don't have a biblical basis for that, 
I'd be fascinated to hear what your basis is because I haven't found a really solid one apart from the biblical view of things. Do you realize what a theological statement is on these signs in this photograph? They're making a statement that's not just a relational, social, political statement. It's profoundly theological. It's saying, along with Thomas Jefferson, that all men are created equal. That's at the heart of Martin Luther King's message. It's the heart of the Christian view of humans. That's where it comes from. Do you realize what we lose if we don't have? And in the beginning, God created. We lose it all. But if we have it, look what we have in humans. You form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. There's the worship again. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God made you fearfully and wonderfully. If you wonder if your life has meaning, if you wonder where the source of your dignity comes from, wonder no longer. It comes from a wonderful God who made you wonderfully. And fearfully, intimately, personally knitted together in your mother's womb. Well, please derive all you are from that. What are the questions that dominate your life? It's amazing how at different periods of our lives, different questions dominate your life. You know, at some points in my life, the biggest question in my life was, will I make the Little League team? I didn't, by the way. Still bitter about it. Um, or should I go to the prom? Who should I ask? Will I ever graduate from high school? Will I ever get into college? If so, which one? What should I major in? Those are the big questions of life very often, right? Or, or should I wonder if she'll say yes if I ask her on a date. That's the looming question very often. I wonder if I'll ever get my, my grades up or ever get a job or the job I want or should I get married and who should I ask and where should I live? And these questions can dominate our lives, but we've got to have, in the midst of all those very legitimate questions, God loves the details, but we've got to have overwhelmingly the question of who is God and who are we before him in the midst of the little league and the dates, and the marriages, and the jobs. In the midst of all of it, it's who is God? That's our driving question, our driving passion. That's where everything else gets ordered rightly, is when we know who God is, when we know who we are before him. You are an amazing creation of God. But the goodness of God, the awe of God, we just went to Yosemite, two weeks ago, in the snow. If you've not been to Yosemite, go soon. If you've never been in the snow, you really should do that. Um, it's amazing. And we went to Hume Lake after. It was just um, incredible. But we as a family work really hard to make sure that when we see Bridal Veil Falls covered in ice, when, when we see the amazing roar of upper and lower Yosemite Falls, when we hear that and see both this amazing unity of the motion of the falls and the diversity of it with all these component parts and, and we hear the roar of it and we're in awe of it, waterfalls are probably my favorite thing in creation. 
It's got it all, right? Um, but we better not terminate on that waterfalls. And we do, we, as a family, we, we constantly say, wow, that's an awesome waterfalls. But how about the God who made it and made El Capitan and made Half Dome and, and made oceans? And what must this God be like? We've got to go through our days in amazing awe of God. If you just think about creation for a little bit, you'll be in awe of God. Do you know they just discovered not that long ago that we knew Saturn had rings, but we didn't know they were braided. What kind of God braids the rings of Saturn? And for all of human history, until just recently, he's the only one who knew. What kind of God makes sea creatures no human has ever seen? Uh, translucent and, and neon-like and just incredible. We haven't even seen many of them. He's just enjoying them right now without us. What kind of God does something like that? We lived in Cambridge for, for a little while, and we got there in the winter, and it was cold and drizzly and cloudy. And I bought a giant sweater or long johns every day. I just was longing for spring. And one day we turned a corner, moved, pulling out of the little village we lived in, heading down to the city. And this field we had driven by day after day had suddenly exploded with daffodils. I mean, lots of them. Lots and lots of them. What kind of God does that? makes daffodils, thousands. One would have been awesome. I was told last service, Sherlock Holmes, in, in one of his stories says, if there was no other evidence for the goodness of God, the rose would be sufficient. One rose. How about thousands of daffodils or daisies? I look this up. How many kinds of flowers do you think there are? How many kind of flowering plants do you think there are? How many kinds of flowers do you think there are? Any guesses? 10 million. No, not 10 million. Way to just take the whole idea. Just start low. Somebody just start like 100. Whoa, that'd be impressive. Yeah, just start there and then we'll go. Yeah. Um, uh, help, me, help me out here. So, yeah. All right, we won't even do that now. So, do you know how many kinds there are? 400,000. 400,000. What kind of God makes 400,000 kinds of flowers? An amazing God. Oh, I love intelligent design. We have some of the leading intelligent design experts in the world at Biola University. But I want to start a different movement called the extravagant design movement. There's no reason for 400,000 kinds of flowers, you can explain, except a God who says, this is great, and they're going to love this. Right? That's the sort of God we have. This, this, do, you know, do you know how many stars there are? And, and when you look this kind of thing up, it keeps using the term in the observable universe. Observable? You mean with all the awesome ability to see so far into space, there's still an unobservable universe? Yeah. <gasps> but let's just talk about the observable one. You know how many stars they estimate are in the observable universe? 
We, we, we're just one galaxy in that. They think there's a billion trillion. What? What? A billion trillion stars. What sort of God are we talking about here? One you don't just trivialize or ignore, do you? And the star's a sun, you know, the sun's a star, you know? And it's a puny one. Just a tiny one. Think about that. Let's, let's go away from the giant, you know, Jason Tress, are you here? Where is he? Did you call him up? All right, so, no, just kidding. He's a cellular biologist. He, he's, he'll talk to you for weeks about the awesomeness of a cell. It's a little city in there doing its thing, more impressive than New York City. You know, one of my favorite things in creation is the taste bud. Taste buds are awesome. Another, another guess. Guess how many taste buds the average person has? Twelve. <laughs> Who was that? Who was that? Hook me up, man. Yeah, I was like, oh, 12 would be impressive, wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how it goes, yeah. So 12 would be impressive. Even 100 would be impressive. I feel like I'm selling a timeshare counter. So, yes. Um, no, do you know how many taste buds the average person has? 10,000. And each of those has these hair-like things that... Uh, reabsorb chemicals and send messages to your brain uh, telling you whether this is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or umami, and telling you what combination of those things it is, or if it's actually rotten and you shouldn't eat it because it'll harm you, and it doesn't even stop there. You know there's this coming together of your taste buds and your olfactory senses that add to the taste just as much, and it's an awesome combination of what your nose does and what your tongue does to enable you to say, this is good, right? What kind of God does that? An awesome, yeah, an awesome God, right? An awesome God who does that. One of the saddest things, yes, one of the saddest things to be about getting old is your taste starts to dull. You know, some of us don't have 10,000 taste buds. Some of us in this room, I can tell, are down to about five right now. But do you know, your taste buds renew themselves every two weeks. But as you get older, they do less and less. One of the worst effects of the fall. Well, the loss of taste but How about the eye? Have you ever studied the human eye? It, it's awesome. How about the hand? Our most brilliant engineers are doing everything they can to just do something remotely that functions like the hand. It's amazing. We should have an entire weekend of worship in light of taste buds. Right? We, we, you can do that. And we're, we walk around bored? No, boredom's a sin, I'm convinced. And that's what I tell my kids. Daddy, I'm bored. Repent. That's what I say. Uh, nothing. Nothing. Now, nothing you can look at should lead you to boredom. It should lead you to worship. That's why we're created. To worship God. That's why he's made us. That's why he put us on this planet. There are constant sunrises and sunsets. I was just with my friend Justin Unger this week, and he said, I love sunsets. He's an artist, man. He's, he's, I, and and he, he said, no, no, you don't realize how much I love them. Like, I don't understand people who don't pull over when there's a sunset. 
or get out when there's a sun, or stop what they're doing when there's a sunset. And do you know, God could have made one a day. They're always happening. <laughs> and so our sun rises. How amazing is that? It's just on a loop. Around the earth, it's an amazing thing. And that's what he's made us for, to, to enjoy him and enjoying these things he'd made, he's made for us to enjoy. This is an awesome God. And do you know of all the amazing things he's done for us, there's nothing more awesome and nothing more awe-inspiring and worship-inducing than that he sent his own son in our place. The creator, the son, the creator came and entered into his creation and tragically we're told we didn't know him. We didn't recognize the creator when he came because our values and priorities were so messed up that when the creator himself came, we found him uninteresting. Nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. And not only does this God come toward, this God who made a billion trillion stars is also the God who comes to you individually and says, I love you so much. I sent my son into this world to die for sinners just like you. And all you need to do is trust him. Turn from that sin and rebellion. See me as the creator and worship me in the son because of the son, for the glory of the son. That's what he's made us for. That's why we're on this planet. And so I need to ask you, if God made you in his image for relationship with him and glory to him, how's that going in your life? How's that going? Is that actually the reality at the heart of your life? Maybe you've never seen your life that way, and this is the morning. You'll turn from sin and self and trust Jesus and have a relationship with your creator you were created for. Oh, and so many of us, all of us who are, are in a relationship with God through Christ need to hear one more time, he made you, he owns you for his glory and your pleasure. Delight in him, rest in him, depend on him. We will have a positive view of the world, a hopeful view of the world. We will pray big prayers. We'll be a confident people, a bold people, a people at peace and at rest when we know God the creator for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are a people who get it all wrong and dwell on the wrong questions as the primary ones. Would you help us, please, Lord, this morning and increasingly throughout our days to put you in your place as the one who made us for yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.